The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Genesis 3, 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And she gave it some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then both eyes were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good evening. Good to be with you this evening. If we haven't met before, my name is, is Tim. I serve as the pastor here. Uh, two fair warnings before we get in this evening. Uh, Lindsay is five days away from her due date. And yeah, that's cool. Uh, and these seasonal allergies are kicking my butt. So if you see me run off stage for any variety of reasons, it's one of those two. Uh, and then Garrison, I'll leave my notes. You just come finish. Um, Hey, Easter is next weekend. Happy Palm Sunday. Super excited uh, to get to celebrate today and next week with you. I hope you've made plans to join us. We're going to be here at 6 o'clock on Friday night for Good Friday, and then 5 o'clock on Easter Sunday to celebrate the resurrection together. Particularly Easter Sunday, we got a lot of fun things happening after the gathering with food trucks and stuff for the kids, all that fun stuff. Very excited uh, for that. Hope you plan to join us. Invite a friend, coworker, neighbor, all that fun stuff. The details are online and in your bulletin. All right, Genesis chapter 3. We got a lot to do today, so we're going to hang out mostly in Genesis 3. We're going to start in Genesis 2. I'm going to pray just to kind of settle us in to hear from the Lord together. So let's pray together, and then we'll we'll dive into what God has for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this evening. Thank you that, as as Morgan reminded us, even right before Pass the Peace, we don't come here as individuals. We don't come here just uh, individually to commune with you or to connect with you or to have some type of worship experience or whatever. God, we come as as a people, as a family, as a group that wants to hear from you, that wants to be united together as your body, that wants to worship you and celebrate you. God, particularly, I think no other week like Holy Week to get to set aside and go look look at you, look at what you have done. Look at the cross, look at the sacrifice of your son, look at the empty tomb. God, we want your glory. Um, So we're grateful. We're grateful to get to study your word. We're grateful that you've revealed yourself to us. We're grateful that uh, in the midst of the story being all about you and for you and revolving around you, that you've chosen to include us in the midst of your joy and into your love and into your kingdom. And so I pray that you would give us a posture of gratitude 
a heart of thanksgiving, even as we consider a difficult, weighty thing like sin and the fall and how we rebelled against you and how we screw things up a lot. God, would you remind us of your mercy? We love you. We need you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are spending uh, these couple of weeks leading up to Easter working through this kind of mini-series called The Story of God. And last week, we kicked off with Genesis chapter 1, and we said that the story of God is about God. That God is the hero, he's the main character, he's the author, that God created all things out of nothing, and that the story starts with, is about, and ends with him. That the entire thing is about God. And where we left off at the end of chapter 1 and kind of the beginning of chapter 2 is God had stepped back at the end of six days of creating the world, and on the seventh day he rests. Not because he was tired, but because he wanted to show us the rhythm and patterns of our lives. And what he does on that seventh day is he looks looks out over his creation and he declares it is very good. The original kind of Hebrew connotation of that is that it's abundantly pleasant. It's exactly right. It is complete. It is as it should be. But then if you're anything like me, that leads to some questions. Because chances are you don't walk through life right now if you've lived any amount of time on the earth going, "You know what? I think it's all very good." Like, chances are you don't wake up in the morning and get on your phone, your favorite news app or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or whatever. While you're scrolling through, chances are your first thought is not, hmm, abundantly pleasant. This is right. This is as it should be. As you look out collectively over the world, maybe the question you find yourself asking that I find myself asking is, instead, why is it so messed up? Why is it so broken? What is going on in the world around us? Or maybe not the global world, but just your very life. Why is my life so messed up? Why does my spouse seem so messed up? Why do my friends seem so messed up? Why does my community seem so messed up? Why does my job seem so messed up? Why does my church, my pastor seem so messed up? Or maybe if you were willing to be honest for yourself for a second, maybe you ask that question about yourself. Why am I so messed up? Why do I not do the things I want to do? Why do I gossip about that friend even though I really don't want to or know that I shouldn't? Why do I keep lashing out at my friend or my kids or my spouse even though something within me says don't do it? Why do I keep doing it? Why am I so quick to get angry? Why am I so quick to get sad? Why am I so quick to get frustrated? Why am I so quick to get jealous? What's going on within me? Why is the world messed up? Why is my life messed up? Why am I seemingly so messed up. So what I think we need is the next part of the story. We're going to move today from Act 1, creation, the kingdom of God begins, to Act 2, what theologians call the fall. And kind of the subtitle for Act 2 is this, the kingdom rebels against the king. The kingdom of God rebels against the king. And what I want to do is answer this question, the second question we ask, what is broken? What is messed up? What is going on? What is broken in myself? What is messed up in the world around me? And real quick, before we kind of get into Genesis 2 and 3, one of the biggest questions that you might have as you approach really the first three chapters, particularly Genesis 3 and the fall, is what do you do with the problem of evil? 
That might be a question you find yourself asking is, okay, if God created the world and it was good, why is there a serpent talking, trying to get people to sin? Why do they sin? Why are they even able to sin? And what do we do with all of that? Uh, We're not going to dive into that today, but two quick helpful things I want to point you to. One is the handout that should be in your bulletin on the problem of evil from Genesis 3. Why is there a serpent? How did the serpent get there? I want to encourage you to read that on your own time, maybe not right now. Uh, Secondly, this past February, we did a Saturday seminar on apologetics, and it's available on our website, citizenscharlotte.com backslash classes. In session three, we dove all into how do you reconcile a good, loving God with suffering of humanity and evil in the world. And so I'd encourage you, check out the handout, check out the website for that apologetic seminar. That kind of gives you our framework for how theologically you reconcile this, but not the point of today. The point of today is to answer what's broken in the world. All right, let's get into it. Genesis chapter two. God creates all things. He's formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. This is right before he's about to form Eve. But this is what we read in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right, so God's creation is beautiful. He has put Adam there. He's given him a task to work it and cultivate it. And then the narrative hones in specifically on two particular trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. All right, pause here real quick. Before we keep going into the narrative and hop over to Genesis 3, I want to make sure that we're on the same page with what the Bible calls sin. So I want to make sure as we talk about sin the rest of tonight, what we mean when we say sin. So the most kind of blanket definition for sin comes out of, there's a lot of New Testament words, but the main one is the word hamartia. And hamartia most simply means missing the mark. So what sin is, is that God the creator has set a standard. And he has told his creation, here's some things you're allowed to do, here's some things you're not allowed to do. And when we rebel against either the don't do's or the do's, then that is sin. We have failed to live up to the standard of God. And the Bible says when that happens, it leads to destruction and to brokenness. In the words of the New City Catechism, I love their definition. They say sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. So God has designed everything right and good to lead to flourishing, and sin is when we break that or go against that design. We don't do what he commands to do. We do what he commands not to do. We live against or in rebellion to God. Now, there's certainly more than that. We're going to get into that in a second, but that's a good kind of baseline foundation for sin. So here in chapter 2, God says to Adam, and the implicit charge is that Adam will teach Eve, hey, you're allowed to do a lot. You're allowed to eat from all these different trees. One thing you're not allowed to do. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because that's what God commanded, if they rebel against that, that is sin. That is an act of missing God's standard, his mark. All right, hop over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. 
I don't know if it's on the screen. You might want a, a Bible or your phone. So the devil shows up on the scene, a talking serpent. It's very weird. Eve talks back, also just as weird. And notice what he does. He's going to talk to them. And rather than kind of showing up being like, Adam, Eve, I'm a serpent, and biting them and like infecting them with poison, instead he's going to come with deception and with lies. And notice in particular how he wants Adam and Eve to begin to question God. Look at this together, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other feast of the, field that the, of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So first, the devil wants them to question God's word, God's commands. He comes with a question, right? Did God actually say did he actually say that? Like, did you double check the original Hebrew and the original Greek? Did you do the right verb conjugation? Like, did he actually, like, did you hear him right? Maybe you got missed in translation or community. Like, did God actually say? But then notice also the question. He says, did God actually say you may not eat from what? Any tree in the garden. So he's both getting them to question the word of God and he's twisting God's words. Did, did God actually say you can't eat from any tree? Did God actually say he has this ridiculous standard on you that you can't eat any of the fruit? Keep reading verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So first he wants them to question God's word. Now he wants them to question the nature of good and evil, right? So they say, no, God said, if we eat it, we're going to die. And he's like, you're not going to die. It's actually a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. He's trying to distort and twist and turn upside down what God has called bad. He is trying to now call good. You're not going to die. You're going to live. Keep going. Verse five, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he wants them to question God's word. He wants them to question the nature of good and evil. Third, he wants them to question God's love. He says, no, you're not going to die. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened. You're going to be like God, meaning he's withholding from you. He's keeping from you. It's not that if you eat this, it's bad for you. It's actually if you eat this, it's good, and God doesn't want you to have that good, so therefore he's withholding. You can't actually trust God. If I could summarize this whole deception of the devil, it would be this. God says, I am good. The tree is bad. Trust me. And the devil shows up and says, no, 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 God is bad. The tree is good. Trust me instead. He shows up and says, no, I'm going to twist it. I'm going to distort it in your mind. I'm going to work through deception and lies to get you to doubt. No, trust me. God is withholding from you. You can't trust him. This tree is actually good. It actually leads to life. You should trust me instead. The temptation pressing against Eve is not a matter of how delicious the fruit is going to be. Right? She's not sitting there with like cravings, like, oh, I really want this fruit. Right? The temptation for Eve is, is she going to trust God, or is she going to trust the snake? Or to actually put another layer to it, is she going to trust God, or is she going to trust herself? Is she going to trust her own perception, her own feelings, her own decision-making, her own rationale? Is she going to trust what God has said, or is she going to trust God? And, and what I find is so kind of sad and ironic in the deception of the devil, if you remember from last week, he shows up and he says, hey, if you eat from this fruit, you will be what? Like God. Remember Genesis 1? What were they already like? They were already like God. They were already created in God's image. They were already made to reflect God. They were designed to have dominion with God under his authority, exercising authority over creation. And the devil comes and says, is that good enough? You want to like really be like God? 
You want to get outside of his authority? You want to be a law unto yourself? Do you want to rule and reign apart from God's authority on your own? Do you want to be the king over your own life? Can you really trust God to be in charge? Can you really trust him to call the shots? Can you really trust that he is good? And I think if we're being honest, we would all say that we face that same temptation every single day, don't we? to trust ourselves, to trust our own decision-making, to trust our own rationale, what we think is good, what we think is flourishing, what we think is right, over trust of God, over trust of his goodness, his ways, his laws, his commands. I want to kind of pause here for a second and give you uh, one huge example of this right now, this kind of war to trust ourselves over trusting God. And, and if I can go there with you, if you can trust me for a little bit, I think the, one of the greatest ways this is playing out of do we trust God and his vision of flourishing or do we trust our own is the desire within the church to recast the biblical framework around human sexuality and around marriage to kind of line up with our society at large. So God has set forth his design where he says that sex and sexuality was created by God as a good thing, as a powerful thing. And God says it's so good and it's so powerful that when two people engage in sex, it is like two becoming one. There's this mysterious soul linking that happens where the Bible says two become like one flesh. And God says that force is so powerful and so strong that the only thing that can hide it is the context of marriage a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for life. And that any expression outside of that bounds, whether it be heterosexual or homosexual, is against what God had in mind from the very beginning. And for thousands of years, I mean, even like (laughs) pre-Jesus, thousands of years, followers of God have taught and sought to live in line with this historic position. Often not well, (laughs) often failing a lot, but the church's doctrine remained the same. And yet you can kind of trace this starting at like 1960s with the sexual revolution into the 1970s, free love, love over war, and then into the 90s and 2000s where you have kind of these grassroots uh, LGBTQ campaigns and then really hyper drive over the last two years uh, with everything that has happened 2020 and beyond to where now if you stand with the ancient sexual ethic of Jesus where you say no I'm on what this Christians and what the church and what God has said for thousands of years it's not that you're just like kind of weird or outdated or lame you actually have the moral low ground in society So what happens is it's not just even if you are the most loving and the most caring and the most uh, gracious, kind, hospitable person, if you take a historic Christian position towards sex and sexuality, you are now a bigot, you are now against other people, you have now postured yourself as hateful. And so the church is at this crisis. They're at this, this tipping point where theologians all over the place are like, hey, I know I wrote this 20 years ago, but like, never mind. I'm taking it back. I actually think this now. Denominations are splitting down the middle over this particular theological issue. Uh, and it used to be, uh, yeah, rather than, okay, let's, let's talk about this and all of this stuff. Now it's like going back to this original question in the garden. They're all asking the same question. Did God actually say That's the question that all of them are asking. They're like, hey, let's look at the text again. Let's go back. Did God actually say, rather than affirming a doctrine that for thousands of years church history has held, they're instead jumping ship to this thing that's showed up in Christian theology max 20, 25 years ago. And so what happens in this question of did God actually say, it's rooted in, well, I stay with me. I promise this is going somewhere. I believe in a God of love. 
And the God that I believe in, because he's a God of love, would not make me deny, deny myself, right? Because that's number one in Western secularism is authenticity and autonomy. So why would he make me say no ever to myself? Which we would say, like, have you read the teachings of Jesus? That's like requirement number one to discipleship to Christ is to be willing to deny yourself. All of us have to do it in some way, shape, or form. But here's what happens in this question and in every other question. And from the very beginning of Genesis 3, all of our sin pushes us to question, can we actually trust God here? It's not a question of desire. It's not a question of, okay, I don't know, maybe we should look at the text and, and jump ship from thousands of years of Christian theology and history. It's can we actually trust God that his way leads to human flourishing? Can we actually trust God? Do we believe that he is withholding from us or do we believe that he is giving to us and that his way is better? The question at some base level for Adam and Eve and for us in all of life, not just in sexuality, in all of life is, do we believe God is a good father? That's the question that comes down to for all of our sin. All of our sin. Do we believe that God is actually a good father? Uh, let me kind of flesh this out a few ways in your life, right? Surely we ask this question, do we believe he's good? So forgiveness, right? Would God really ask you to forgive that person who hurt you? Like, would God actually ask you to go have that reconciling conversation with that person who insulted you, yelled at you, said that horrible thing about you? Doesn't he know how difficult that would be? Does he know how hard that would be for you? Does he really love you? Does he really want your good? Why would he make you go do that? Or maybe think about generosity with your finances or your time. Doesn't God know how hard you work? Doesn't he know how deserving you are of that thing you want to buy or that vacation you want to take? Doesn't he know how stressed out you are? Doesn't he want you to be happy and enjoy life? Are you sure he really loves you that he would ask you to give of yourself like that? And it's never overt like that. <laughs> I think for most of us, it's never like, okay, let me sit down. Do I think it's always under the surface? It's always this deeper question of, do I trust that God and following him leads to flourishing? Or do I have to go after these other things to finally give my soul the rest that I crave? Do I have to run after these other things, these other things that I would say, maybe that's going to make me happy. Maybe the fruit's going to make me happy. Maybe this thing is going to make me happy. Maybe this way is going to make me happy. But here's what you have to understand about Genesis chapter 3. God doesn't want them not to eat the fruit simply to withhold from them. He wants them not to eat because eating leads to death. That's Genesis 3, right? It's not, hey, I don't want you to eat from this because the, the fruit's really good and I don't want you to be happy. No, he says, don't eat from this. This leads to death. Eating leads to the knowledge of good and evil. Eating leads to destruction. Eating leads to pain and grief and misery, which is true of all sin. All of our sin leads to destruction. And God is not after our destruction. God is after our flourishing. John 10, 10, Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life what? More abundant, life to the full, true freedom, not freedom in total individual autonomy like we think, but freedom that comes in the fullness of submitting our lives to Christ. True joy, true life. God tells them not to eat, not because he doesn't love them, but precisely because he loves them. So this is what you have to get. This is what you have to understand. Where, where, are, we, where are we going with all of that? Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. This is what you have to understand about sin. You're never going to have the victory over sin you want in your life until you understand. Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. Really cheesy, stupid example. Uh, we've been potty training Harper over the past few weeks, and a couple of days ago, 
Uh, we're sitting there, and she does this thing where we put her on her toilet. Her, she has like a little like tower potty thing. It's very cute and adorable. And we sit on this little stool, and we talk to her while she's going to the bathroom. I know this is great, TMI. But she was doing this thing where she was reaching for something. It's, there's a point. She was reaching for something that was like just out of reach, kind of right on the edge of where she was sitting on the toilet. And I'm telling her, I'm saying, Harper, don't reach for that. Harper, don't touch that. Harper, don't reach for that. And she's just like kind of looking at me like this, you know, just like a little bit, little bit, little bit. I'm like, Harper, do not reach for that. And I'm like, you know, my dad voice is kind of coming out like, Harper, Beth, do not reach for that. And she's looking at me like, try this arm, try that arm. And finally, it happens where she reaches just a little bit too far and boom, a face plant right on the bathroom floor. And I mean like, oof, kind of moment. Uh, don't tell her I told this story. But she face plants right in the bathroom. So, and I look at her and she's like crying and I'm like, it's okay, whatever. And I'm trying to tell her, we're having this kind of calm down conversation where I'm saying, Harper, I wasn't trying to keep you from touching that thing because I didn't want you to have it. I was trying to keep you from touching that thing because I knew this was going to lead to bad. This was going to lead to destruction. And so much of our battle with sin, do we actually believe God is saying no here, withholding from me because he wants my flourishing and he wants my life? Or do I think he's withholding from me because he doesn't want my joy? He doesn't want my good. He doesn't want me to actually flourish with him. And so the question of all sin, all temptation comes down to, do you believe God is for your flourishing? Do you believe he is for your joy? Do you believe he is actually for your good? So the devil shows up. He says, I know what God said. The tree's bad. Don't believe it. Don't trust him. He's withholding from you. This is good. This is life. Hop back in. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So theologians talk about how this is the first time shame enters the human equation. They realize we are laid bare before each other, not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally, laid bare before each other, laid bare before God. They want to hide. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. So God comes to enjoy fellowship with them. They hide from him. Again, another indication of shame because of their sin. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Which, side note, God knows all things. He knows that. He's just questioning, trying to draw this confession out of Adam. Verse 12, the man said, mm, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. So he's like, nope, the woman, she gave it to me. You gave me the woman. Really, it's all y'all's fault. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so they keep passing the blame off. God, we know we've sinned against you, but in our shame, we're hiding. We're pushing the blame off. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You're going to want to underline that. We'll come back to it at the end. Verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is what's often called the the curse of sin, and I want you to notice, this is a a side note, uh, the serpent is cursed in Genesis 3, the ground is cursed, Adam and Eve are never cursed. There's great salvation theological implications of that, more than we can get into, but they're not cursed. There's consequences for their sin, but God doesn't curse them. He's leading them towards blessing uh, down the line. But for Eve, there's consequences of pain and childbearing. The original design is still there, that they would be fruitful and multiply. It's just going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. And not just childbirth being painful, but all aspects of childbearing being painful. This means infertility. This means miscarriages. This means difficulty in raising children. Like there's just going to be hurt and pain and heartache associated with that command that God gave them to be fruitful and multiply. Same thing for Adam. The command is still there to have dominion, to work, to labor, but now the ground's going to produce thorns and thistles. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be sweat and heartache. This is a really good word for those of us who think if we find the perfect job, it's always going to go perfect for us. It's just not true. Sorry, Genesis 3.19. It's always going to be difficult. It's part of the, the curse of sin. So they've rebelled against God, his good design of flourishing. There's a breakdown that happens between themselves, between creation, between them and God. All right, let me summarize kind of where we've been. That's chapter two of the story, the fall. The kingdom rebels against the king. God calls Adam and Eve to dwell in the garden, to live in a deep relationship with him as his image bearers, to join him in his work of ruling and reigning, exercising dominion under his authority. He's like, join me in this. One thing you can't do, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One command. It's not hard, guys. Just don't do the one. They do the one. They eat. They rebel. There's consequences. Sin, not just as a concept, but as a reality enters the world. But then I think that then begs the question, what does that mean for us? Like what, what does a man and a woman eating a fruit they weren't supposed to eat thousands of years ago have to do with us in 2022, Charlotte, North Carolina? Like what, what does the fall, what does the kingdom of God rebelling against the king mean for us? What does it mean for why me and the world is so, I and the world is so messed up? Well, I told you at the beginning that our definition of sin was incomplete. That it can't just be sin, it can't just be things we do or don't do. And that's because when the Bible talks about sin, which it does a lot, it talks about it not just as something we do or don't do, or something done against us. The Bible gives a picture of sin that is not just action, but also nature. So to kind of put it in in one statement for you, sin in the scriptures is not just on us, it's not just something we do or live out, sin is also in us and of us. Sin is not just an action we do or an action we don't do. It is something in us and of us. Because of the sin of Adam, sin enters the world, and according to the Bible, we are all now born both guilty and corrupted. Both guilty and corrupted. This is Romans 5, verse 12. Paul, kind of his big theological treatise, says this. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
Paul is saying there is because of the sin of Adam, we're all born, quote, of Adam. That is, into humanity. And the punishment God gave to Adam, the consequences for his sin, the guilt he has before the Lord, is now placed onto all of us who are born as humans as well. All of us who are born into humanity, which is all of us in the room, are born guilty before God, separated from him as his enemy. Not neutral with God, not friendly with God, enemies of God. But we're not only born guilty, we're also born corrupt. This is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and notice this, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul says to the church at Ephesus, he says, by nature, we are children of wrath. Our nature is corrupted by sin. Our very core, our very essence. That's why other places in scripture, like Romans says, there's no one righteous, no, not one. Because at our core, we are bent towards evil. Uh, I came across uh, this book uh, a few weeks ago, and it, it's by this guy named Francis Spufford. He's a uh, kind of British. He was dogmatic atheist turned theologian, and he wrote a book a few years ago. I love the title. It's called Unapologetic, Why Despite Everything, Christianity Can Still Make Surprising Emotional Sense, which I think is just like a, that's a compelling title to a book. Uh, I don't know if I recommend the book. He's very crass. So just a heads up, this quote is PG-13. Don't email me, okay? It's PG-13. This is what he says about sin. Ah, oh, it's just gold. He says, what I and other believers understand by the word sin has got very little to do with yummy transgression. Don't you love that? Very little to do with yummy transgression. I don't know what he means by that. Fill in the blank. He says, for us, it refers to something so much more like the human tendency, the human propensity to mess up. Or let's add one more word, the human propensity to mess things up. Because what we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, our passive role as agents of entropy. I love that. Our passive role of, as agents of discord, of craziness, of randomness. He says that's not what's happening in sin. Sin is our propensity to mess things up. He keeps going. It's our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here including moods, promises, relationships we care about and our own well-being and other people's as well as material objects whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big fat scratch now i hope we are on common ground yes we are mr spufford i love that he says we are not passive agents of entropy we're not random people that just kind of mess up that occasionally do some bad stuff we didn't mean to but we just kind of do because we made a mistake he says no sin is that deep thing within us that just makes us mess things up so to put it as simply as i can what's wrong and what's broken with the world sin 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 is what is wrong but not just sin out there sin in here sin in us we are what is broken with the world. What's wrong with the world, what's broken about us and the world around us is that because of the sin of Adam and Eve being placed on all of our humanity, our default is not neutral. Our default is not shaped only by our past. Our default is not kind of good. Our default when we are born into the world is sinful and separated from God. And so the problem is not that we just mess up occasionally and every so often we do something we shouldn't. The problem is not these other things out here that are hurting us or causing us pain or holding us back. Now, there is those things. 
We do mess up. We do make some stupid decisions. People do hurt us. Those things are true. But the greatest brokenness according to the Bible and according to the fall is in here. In our hearts. Our souls are corrupted, are bent out of shape because of the sin of Adam. Something has gone fundamentally wrong with humanity, that we are now crooked, that we are warped and bent out of shape in the wrong direction of what is good and towards what is evil. We're at our core, according to the language of the scriptures, debased and sinful and unrighteous. Or to use the language of Paul in Romans 8, 7, he says, The mind that is set on the flesh, that is all of us apart from God, is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. Not that it won't. It, it cannot. It just can't. There's something within us apart from God that just cannot submit to God or follow him. We are bent at our core. And, and to human hearts in our culture that stubbornly think we are basically good and self-sufficient, that's not just like annoying to hear. That's like wrong. It's like, no, I'm, I'm good. I do some good things. I helped that lady cross the street. Is that still what's good? I don't know. I, like, I did some good things, right? I served occasionally. I like, do some stuff. I like, give to charity. Like I am good. And the overwhelming message of the Bible, according to Genesis 3, is that there is a deeper problem. Not our past, not our symptoms, not our systems. The problem is not out there. The deepest problem is in here. We have to deal with the heart. That is why if you keep reading the story of Genesis 3, things don't get better. They actually get much, 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 much worse. You just keep going in the story, right? Genesis 4, Adam and Eve are like, let's have some sons. They have Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Murder. Immediately, right after they eat from a fruit. A few years later, they're like, one of their sons is killing another son. There's the first after effect of sin is violence. And you later in Genesis chapter 4, you get introduced to a descendant of Adam called, named Lamech. And Lamech introduces the first instance in the scriptures of polygamy, which is violence against women that leads to all types of corruption and sin. And then you keep going, Genesis 6. Literally, the title in my Bible is Increasing Corruption on Earth. Like, it just keeps getting worse. And so God's like, I'm going to send a flood. I'm going to start over with Noah. We're going to try again with his family. This is not going well. And then you go, okay, there's a flood. Everybody is wiped out. Noah, now Genesis 9, post-flood, he's in a garden. And there's this strange, like, all right, new family in a garden. Like, all right, Genesis 1, do over. And then Noah gets drunk, and there's, like, some weird stuff with his son. You can go read it later. And then Genesis 11, humanity builds a tower to heaven, rejecting God and saying, God, we don't need you anymore. We're good on our own, which is just a, a corporate version of what happens in Genesis chapter 3. And it just keeps getting worse from there. What we're meant to do is we kind of read Genesis 3 and then we keep going on through the book of Genesis in the first seven pages of scripture, the first 11 chapters, is we're meant to look at the brokenness and sin and corruption of humans and go, what hope is there? What are we supposed to do? I mean, just a few years later, a few decades later, things are going very, very bad. How is humanity going to get out of this problem? And that's what we're going to talk about next week, Good Friday and Easter. The long answer, read the rest of the Bible. The short answer, Genesis 3.15. Look at it again with me. This is what God says in the midst of consequences of sin. He says this, he says, I will put enmity between you, the, the serpent, the Satan, the enemy of God and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I think the ESV isn't as fun here. Uh, the NIV says he will crush your head. And I love that language. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Theologians call this the proto-evangelion. It's the first gospel. 
the first declaration from God in the midst of all of these consequences of sin that it's not going to stay this way forever, that he makes a promise that one day through the line of Adam, through humanity, there's going to be a redeemer, someone who will come and crush the head of God's enemy, end the war once and for all between God and Satan, and in the great mystery and profound beauty of the gospel, we know that that's Jesus. Right, that God sends his only son, fully God becomes fully man to crush the head of the serpent through his life, death, and resurrection, everything we're going to celebrate next weekend. But here's where I want to close. Here's where I want to I land for us. I know this is weighty. Welcome to church. Happy Palm Sunday. <laughs> Happy Master Sunday. I know that's why you're skipping the masters right now. You'll notice, I want you to notice this. It, this is something new that I, I hadn't seen. Um, it was not original to me. Many smart people pointed it out uh, in my reading uh, and study for this. But notice in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin, right? They eat the fruit. But then who does the hiding? Who hides in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve. And who seeks in Genesis 3? God. God comes after them. He seeks them. He asks them the questions. We often think in our sin that it's the opposite. We often think in our sin, okay, I disobeyed against God. I rebelled against him. Now I need to prove to him how awesome I am as a follower of Jesus. Like I know I sinned. I know I messed up. I know I did like these five things. So that's like 10 minutes of Bible reading per sin. So I'm going to read my Bible for like 50 minutes. And I'm going to pray a lot. And in my prayers, I'm going to be like, God, I'm super serious this time. This is the last time. This is it. I'm team Jesus. I'm on board. Like, I'm good. We see, we think in our sin, God hides from us and we have to go seek after him. And the message of Genesis 3 and the message of the gospel is actually, no, it's the complete opposite. Because what happens in our sin is that we go into hiding and God says, no, I am the one who seeks. I am the one who pursues. I am the one who goes after you. God in his story is always the seeker. If you keep reading Genesis 4 through 11, it gets worse and worse and worse. But if you keep going and keep going and keep going all the way through the Old Testament, all the way until the greatest act of seeking by God where he sends his son who says, I have come to seek and save the lost. God is a seeking God who keeps going after his people in our sin. And so here's the invitation for you tonight. Here's what I want you to do with Genesis 3. Here's the invitation. Feel the weight of your sin. Feel the the weight and depth of your sin because God seeks us when we're lost in our sin. And because that is true, we are free to feel the deep weight of our sin before him. So if you have a low view of sin, if you have a view of sin that's like, I'm kind of a good person, I just make some mistakes, or, well, yeah, I just do bad stuff because, like, my past was really bad, and so it's just, like, kind of shaped me to be bad. Or if you're like, well, I know sin is, like, kind of like grace, right? Like, we're grace people, yes, no. Sin. If you have a low view of sin, you are by necessity going to have a low view of the gospel. Because you're going to say Jesus died for stuff that you don't think is that big of a deal. And so you might say, like, Jesus' death is a big deal. Like, God died. That's kind of a big deal. But what he died for isn't that big of a deal. And so your gospel is going to stay small as long as your sin stays small. But the deeper you go into your sin, the deeper you are more honest, more open, more vulnerable, when you actually let God see that side of you that you don't even want to look at yourself, that's where the full weight of the gospel can come to bear in your life. Martin Luther, and here's where we'll close, I promise. Martin Luther, uh, a few months after being put on trial for preaching the gospel and this whole 95 thesis thing, he writes a letter to his friend. And I think it just encapsulates this idea of going and feeling the weight of our sins so that the gospel becomes more beautiful really perfectly. This is what he says. He says, if you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary, but the true mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. 
be a sinner and let your sins be strong. Not like sin a lot, but like feel the strong weight of them. But let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. Church, you can let your sin be strong. You can let your corruption be real. You can let your guilt be given to you by Adam. You can declare before God that separated from him, you are full of sin. And that even now as a follower of Jesus, you don't follow him as you should, love him as you should, go after him as you should. And you are freed up to bear the full weight of the sin because there's a God who is stronger and a grace that is deeper and a future past redeemer who's coming again, who has crushed the head of the serpent has defeated Satan, sin, and death. That's what we celebrate every week when we celebrate communion together. Every week, every week we are celebrating that by the act of a death on the cross, through a life, through a death, and through a resurrection, Jesus, the true promised Genesis 3.15 Messiah, has crushed the head of the serpent, has crushed God's enemy, has defeated Satan, sin, and death, not like as concepts, but as reality. Now, one day he's going to return to make all things new. And so we're going to practice this together. If you're not a Christian, this is one of the only practices we'd ask you not to do with us, not because we want to withhold from you, but because you uh, would be saying that this is true about you when it's just not yet. But rather than take communion, I invite you to take Christ, to believe that he has grace for your sin, has mercy in the midst of your separation from him, your guilt, your corruption, that he has died to bring you back to himself. I'd love to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus afterwards. I'll be down front. But for all who are in Christ, let's take the bread, this little wafer, which represents the body of Jesus, given for us, put on the cross, that he took our sin, took our shame, took our guilt before God, that both our nature and our inherited guilt before God have been dealt with through the cross of Christ. So church, take and eat. In the same way, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took a cup of wine. We have this juice which represents the blood of Christ. And he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. For every time you eat the bread, you drink the cup. You're announcing, remembering, celebrating the Lord's death until the promise that he will return. And so what we get to do tonight is remember that by the blood of Jesus, we're washed clean from our nature that's corrupted, our guilt that's inherited, that we are made right with the Lord. So church, take and drink. Just a minute, we're going to have a chance to respond, but let me, let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for Genesis 3. And we're, we're grateful, God, that we have this game-changing, altering reality in Genesis 3.15, that even in the midst of the consequences of sin, the punishment for sin, the very real after effects and devastation that comes from Adam and Eve's rebellion, that you and your kindness and mercy make a promise. And a beautiful promise that one day someone will come from the line of Adam who will crush the head of the serpent. God, and thank you that you fulfilled that promise some 2,000 years ago through Jesus. God became man that by his life, his death, his resurrection, he has taken our sin on himself and gives us, all who trust in him, his righteousness. God, and so I, I pray that we would believe that and that we would be willing as your people to go deep into our sin, 
to not feel like we have to put a face on for each other, to not feel like we have to put a face on for you, to not feel like we have to put on a front for ourselves, that we can be honest about the depth and weightiness of our sin. God, would you open our hearts to you and to each other and to ourselves that we would say, this is the full weight, and I'm sure even some that I don't know about or can't see, God, because we are freed to do that because the gospel of grace through Christ is so much stronger. God, so I pray that you would open our hearts to you. God, would you deepen our trust? Would you deepen our belief that your way leads to life, your way leads to flourishing, that we don't need to trust ourselves, that we need to trust you? God, would you tell us, show us, give us glimpses of that reality, Lord, that you are trustworthy and true, that you do want a light and easy yoke for your people. God, we need you. We need your help. We need your spirit to help us believe that it's true, that you are trustworthy and good. We love you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.